Our guest today is Lawrence Booth, editor of The Wisden, and uh, he also writes the top spin column in the Daily Mail. You can find him on Twitter at the underscore topspin. Welcome to the show, Lawrence. Thanks, Sebastian. Thanks for having me. Pleasure. Um, now that uh, the test series in UAE between England and Pakistan is over, what are your initial thoughts on what has happened? Well... <laughs> England have never been able to play spin very well in Asia, so that the series confirmed that with knobs on, didn't it? It was <laughs> it was pretty grim from an, an English middle order perspective. The top order wasn't much better. Um, what was interesting to me was what emerged after the series when Andy Flower more or less admitted that the players hadn't been prepared properly, mm-hmm. and that was that was quite a shock for uh, a team that has grown up sort of lauding its own professionalism. That's been one of the the key qualities, I think, to, to the England cricket team and, and one of the reasons, really, it rose to the top of the rankings last summer. Mm-hmm. So that was, that was interesting, and it, and it raised questions of complacency, I mean, questions that cropped up after the 2005 Ashes win, and they, they went straight to Pakistan and lost 2-0. So that, that was curious. I think uh, the bowling was excellent, you know, really, England should probably have won that series 2-1. That's the crazy thing about it. They <laughs> they needed 1-4-5 to win the second test, and then they, they had Pakistan 44-7 for seven, uh, on the first morning of the third. So so really freakish, but superb bowling by Pakistan, and, and I'm delighted for them after uh, the, the hell they've gone through for, for various reasons over the last couple of years. So I, mean, I, I wrote before the series started that a, a Pakistan win would be good for international cricket, and I, and I stick by that. I was just slightly taken aback by the uh, ineptitude of the English. Are we moving towards an era where teams are so good at home, but when they go to conditions where, where they're not comfortable, historically or currently, um, then they get exposed? I mean, India rightfully got uh, you know stick for how uh, inept and pathetic their performances were in England as well as in Australia. Um, should yeah. England be measured using the same stick? Absolutely. I mean, they, you know, India, India did get stick in England, and England deserve all the stick they're going to get in return for the way they played in the UAE. Although, well, I perhaps there's a slight. I mean, England, England's bowlers were were good, and they they answered a question there about how they can bowl in in Asian conditions. Mm-hmm. So that was one box ticked, but the the batting was so poor that the question does still remain. I think, I mean, generally speaking, teams who go outside their own uh, comfort zones, if you like, and I'm, I'm thinking here mainly about a, an Asian-non-Asian split, mm-hmm. generally speaking, they they have always struggled. There was a period in the, in the mid-2000s when India's away record suddenly picked up and, you know, they, they were playing gutsy cricket under Ganguly and, and a, a bit after he left. And that that kind of skewed the 
uh, the, the trend, but what, we're returning to it now a bit, and it, it's partly down, I think, to the fact that lead-in times to tours are so short now. So there's little time for acclimatisation. Often what happens is the home team wins the first test and then the away team is, is playing catch-up for the rest of the series. But, yes, it's, it's not a good trend. Um, and it doesn't help, I don't think, when some cricketers come out and say, oh, don't worry, we'll, we'll get them when we play them at home. <laughs> um, I, one, the, one, one area I was mildly encouraged by England was in the, their honesty in saying, look, we were just hopeless. And we have got to sort out uh, the way we play spin in Asia. Flowers come out and said all the players have said that. Uh, so there is hope there for them. Um, whether this is the same for all other teams, Subash, I can't possibly say. <laughs> um, going back to uh, the question of preparation, you know, uh, we heard, um, and I don't mean this in a negative way, just to be clear, um, that, you know, England, the preparation was so good. Um, for Ashes uh, and how they played India at home. Um, the, it was surprising that somebody that comes off as a strict disciplinarian like Andy Flower actually came out and said, well, we didn't prepare well. Um, and he's someone that he started, you know, he played spin really well. So you, And England had at the disposal uh, you know, the academies and uh, the spin machines and all that. Um, this is sort of a question as well as a comment, a question from uh, Mayank Zaveri. Uh, what is done being, uh, domestically in England to overcome this? And what is being done currently uh, in the highest level in the international team by Andy Flower and others to combat this? Uh, I'm not sure a lot is, is done domestically as such. I mean, each county coach out answers to his members and wants success for the county. And there, there are very few pitches in England where you'd say that's a spinner's wicket. You know, one or two pitches suit spinners better. But generally, counties play to their strengths. And the strength in England, as we all know, is, is seen bowling. Internationally, however, and th uh, this is the key, really, because part of the reason England have done well is they've taken players out of county cricket early and they've, they've sent them on Lions tours and performance programmes and so on. That, that's where the difference is made or should be made. We've seen, for example, the Lions uh, played one-day series recently in Bangladesh and Sri Lanka. Mm -hmm. And actually, there have been a couple of quite stunning innings out there. Joss Butler, Craig Kieswetter scored a couple of blistering hundreds in Sri Lanka. Uh, as you mentioned, uh, you alluded to Merlin there, the, the spin bowling machine. Well, that, that's at Loughborough. But, you know, they, they can do as much work as they like in, in the, the theory of playing at spin bowling but unless it's in your blood mm -hmm. it's going to be very hard to under in pressure situations in test matches as we saw in the uae it's quite hard you know i think people revert to old habits in english batsmen and dare i say it, south african batsmen <laughs> um, don't have not been brought up to to use their feet to spin bowlers in the same way that asian batsmen do they just have a different approach to it you saw i mean part of the reason england lost that series when they failed to chase down one four five was because we saw it from Cook and Strauss, the first 15 overs. They just played the spin from the crease. And after 15 overs, England had 20 on the board, and the, the template was set. Ian Bell, actually, is one of the... This sounds a crazy statement to make after his, his shocker of a series, but he actually plays spin better than most English batsmen because he uses his feet. He, he played Shane Warne pretty well, for example, in the 06-07 Ashes. He, he, he got down the track to him, and he disrupted his, his length, and that's what you have to do. And that doesn't seem to be in the... English batsman's psyche so somehow that has to be conveyed to them and that's that's almost a generational change 
Um, you know, Flower may have been a great player of spin. He was. He reverse swept. He, he manoeuvred the field. He opened up the gaps. But can he convey that to this current generation of England cricketers? It's going to be tough. And you almost think, well, maybe we just have to wait to the next generation, the ones coming through now, the likes of uh, Butler and I wouldn't say Keyswetter as much, but Butler's there's certainly hope and hope that they, they've got these uh, bad habits out of their system. And I want to ask a couple of questions about the composition of the team and where it's headed. Uh, and this is a question from Chasing Willow. And she wants to know, you know, Monty has made a comeback into the team. Um, you know, looking ahead, you know, you have a tour to Sri Lanka and you have a tour to India. Um, so now is he going to be a permanent fixture uh, in the team? And what about Morgan? Uh, where does he stand? Um, and the second part of the question is, uh, is there a disconnect between England's, you know, uh, team, you know, greater than the sum of the parts, uh, but still some of the players being, you know, hyped up as these uh, larger-than-life characters, you know? Is, the, is there an effort by the media to, uh, you know, hype up some of the players, say maybe Swanee or uh, Kevin? Mm. Um, so that's the two-part question. Yeah, OK. Um, Monty... We'll have a busy year in Test cricket, certainly away from home. He'll he'll almost certainly play in both Tests in Sri Lanka, and I'd be surprised if he didn't play in at least three of the four in India later this year. I mean, I, mean, I suppose they may come across a track that's not spinning, but I, I doubt that very much somehow. <laughs> um, so at home, it's a different matter. I mean, he, I can't see him playing in any of the three home Tests against West Indies in early summer because England will just go back to three seamers and a spinner. And against South Africa, it may be the same. So Monty, is, he's not a permanent fixture and he won't be unless he becomes the number one spinner. And he won't become that unless his batting and fielding improve out of sight or Swan loses it completely. And Swan's still a good bowler. He's, not, he's had a, an interesting year, not quite as potent as he was before that. But they like, his, they like the fact that he can field in the slips and he can chip in with 30 from, from number nine. And just the general, uh, you know, bonhomie and spirit he brings to the side. Uh, Morgan is is interesting. He, I thought before the series that he was the one potential weak link in the entire England side. I was I was proven completely wrong by that. There, it turns out there are several weak links, <laughs> but but Morgan. Morgan was the, the obvious weak link. And I, th- and I think he's, he, he still clearly hasn't answered the question, which is can he translate his one-day form into test cricket? You know, it's all very well playing some nice reverse sweeps in the one-day arena where the field is spread. But with men round the bat in test cricket, and we saw several situations, he was under real pressure. He, he was probably a bit unlucky and he came, he often arrived at the crease in real, really tense moments, you know, 20 minutes to go before the close, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But he didn't handle it. And he's based his... CV so far on being ice cool and uh, above the fray, if you like, and, and that hasn't happened. So, I read your line about him uh, being able to cool down a furnace from ten yards away. Yeah, well, that, that's his. That's been his his sort of USP, if you like, and it's it's certainly under question. That, that the slight problem they've got now is, uh, do they bring in Bopara? I don't. I don't necessarily have faith that Bopara would have changed anything. Um, I think he's a guy who lets the pressure get to him. I'd almost be tempted to go to the next generation. Let, let's let's see if Butler's got what it got what it takes. Um, the disconnect you mentioned uh, are, the, are the media hyping up players. 
Um, I'd say Kevin Peterson gets a lot of stick in in the English press, as much stick as he gets praise, and it's sort of erring towards more stick than praise these days. Um, I think there's a feeling that he's, he's sometimes he's not totally honest about things like the left arm spin issue, for example. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's pretty obvious to anyone watching him <laughs> back now that if if Abdul Raymond pitches it on the stumps and straightens it, then you know we've got trouble brewing. Um, I, I is Swan? Do we hype up Swan? I I think I think everyone can can see what kind of a guy he is. He, mm-hmm. He's he likes to crack jokes, and sometimes actually that can be annoying for journalists and press conference because it means we can't quote him. We want a serious quote that we can write a news story about, not a uh, a joke that we can't um, we can't make anything serious of. He, I, I think maybe to a degree his his jokiness lets him get away with things that others wouldn't get away with. For example, on Twitter, I mean, a more serious member of the team would probably have been told you may, you may, you can never tweet again if they'd written half the things Swan's tweeted. <laughs> so in that in that sense, he probably does get away with it a bit. Um, but people people are watching him closely, and they know he hasn't had a, a great year. Uh, someone like Broad, I think, is doesn't really need hyping up at the moment because his bowling in the last two Test series has been outstanding. Mm-hmm. Um, likewise, Anderson. So I yeah I I'm not sure I totally buy the idea. You you would say I would say that, wouldn't you? Because I am a, a newspaper journalist. But I'm not sure <laughs> I totally buy the idea that we we pump up our players. Uh, un, Unnecessarily. Uh, just a couple of questions uh, on uh, English team, and then we'll move on to journalism. Aish uh, Red Devil, he wants to know: you know, after the release of Swan's uh, autobiography, uh, there have been reports that not everything is quite right in the dressing room. Is there any truth to it? What are your thoughts on it? Yeah, I was, in, I was out in India for that the uh, the one day series that India won five nil. Um, and the Swans book had been serialised in a couple of papers back home, right at the start of the series, actually the worst possible timing for mm-hmm. a tour. And throughout that tour, we tried to, we asked various players, you know, is, is there an issue? And in fact, Andy Flower came out fairly quickly and said, look, I don't think this is right. I don't think players should comment on current teammates in a book. Wait till their careers are over. Swan said, I remember before the 2020 game in Kolkata when Swan was captain, he told us it was a, a media beat-up. Uh, as usual, we were getting the wrong end of the stick and so on. And then, and then the next day, Peterson was man of the match, which meant that he sat next to Swan at the post-match press conference. And mm-hmm. Peterson, who hadn't had a chance to talk about this yet on tour, was asked about it. And he said he said he didn't think it was a very good idea. And you could see Swan's face dropping as this uh, the myth that it was a media beat-up um, was dispelled by his, his teammate. So... That I think was quite telling. I think, I think Peterson was unhappy. I think he dealt with it very well. Actually, Flower was right that Peterson dealt with it very maturely. Didn't let it get to him. I mean, if you or I uh, were exposed or mm-hmm. criticised by a, a colleague in our workplace publicly, I doubt we'd be doing cartwheels, would we? It's <laughs> it's, it's human nature to to not be especially delighted with that kind of thing. Whether that's created uh, other problems, I I don't think so really i i think one of the the nice things about this england team is they all get on pretty well i you know i've spent a reasonable amount of time around the man on tour which is when you you almost see how close-knit they are more than when they're at home and they do get on pretty well peterson's probably the only guy who risks standing on the outer you know he's a 
he's more of a uh, he, he tries to cultivate his image a bit more than the others you might say and has more of a sense of his own celebrity but the others are all pretty good guys i'd say uh, peterson's a good guy too don't get me wrong but they're a nice bunch of blokes and uh i, I think they get on pretty well all right um Let's move towards uh, cricket journalism and where the wisdom fits in all of this. Um, I'm going to start with a question from uh, Homer Tweets, and I'm sure you've seen it too. Uh, you know, given that uh, the print media worldwide is getting squeezed, you know, everybody's competing for the same small amount of pie, um, how how does wisdom fit in all this? How how do they say, stay relevant? Um, and you know, we have seen, especially it was very obvious during the India England series that uh, journalists were basically you know uh, becoming cheerleaders for their own teams. Um, is it based on their own convictions, or is it is there a directive given by people above them saying that, well, you know what, we have a target audience, say, for example, Indian newspaper or TV, that they have to serve the Indian uh, viewers and readers, and English uh, newspapers and TV, they have their English viewers and readers. So we need to cater to them. Um, is that a directive like that, in your opinion? Um, so where do you see this sort of thing going? Yeah, shall I, shall I deal with wisdom first? Um... Sure. How, how, how is wisdom relevant? It's a, it's a very good question, and it's one that wisdom has been wrestling with really for the you know well before I came on board. Um, you know how is a, how is an annual publication relevant in the internet age when statistics are updated? You know by the second, uh, wisdom has a a big record section, and one of the questions we have to ask is. Uh, what are we going to do with that section when some of the statistics are actually out of date by the time the book's published, crazily? Um, so we're, we're, we're trying to shrink the record section bit by bit um, and migrate more of our statistics to our uh, fairly rudimentary website at the moment so that, uh, I mean, Wisdom isn't, Wisdom has always been a, a, a record book in a sense and you'd be You'd be shocked, I think, to open it and not find, not be able to find, for example, that <laughs> the best test score ever was by Brian Lara. Mm. You know, you've got to, there has to be a, a basic statistical service. Um, but above and beyond that, we've, we're trying to encourage people to, to notice that we have, there's a lot of good writing in Wisdom. There are, there are more sort of big front of book pieces than they used to be. They used to be four or five. Now it's closer to 20. And I think it, if you're talking about USPs, I think one of the questions I saw on Twitter was yeah. asked about USPs. I think very few organisations, newspapers, magazines, whatever, have have that capacity to attract all the big names in world cricket writing to write about important subjects and, and write about it skillfully. So I think that that's that's a strong draw for wisdom, and I, I'd I'd almost commend that section more than our record section, which is vitally important, but uh, is is not such a focus of the book now that the internet is taking over. I mean, we've, we've also got a, month, uh, a, a magazine now online called Wisdom Extra, which we're trying to produce sort of two, three, four times a year, depending on uh, what's going on in the world of cricket. So we're trying to keep the Wisdom name in people's consciousnesses beyond uh, the April publication. So I, th I think there's also still a, a room for a, an independent voice on cricket. And Wisdom's been going 
149 years this year will be its 149th publication. And while, you know, longevity per se isn't necessarily an advert for anything, Mm -hmm. I think it's wisdom has over the years developed a a feeling that it's, I mean, the words we use are integrity, authority and independence. You know, others can be the judge of whether we live up to that. But those are certainly the the qualities that we, we aim for. And that I think that still counts for something um, in an, in a world where maybe people are being pulled in different directions and, and their vested interests, and that maybe brings me on a bit to the, the second part of your question. Yeah, um, journalists being cheerleaders and are there directives? Uh, no, there aren't. Well, certainly from my own experience, there aren't directives. I think it's taken for granted that. A newspaper constituency, its first loyalty is to to its immediate readership. So for an English newspaper, that's that's the English readers. I think the the situation is complicated slightly by the fact that everything is now available on the web. So mm-hmm. the, the, the idea of a local readership is perhaps a, an increasingly bogus one, and that's one that newspapers certainly have to deal with. Um, are journalists cheerleaders? Well, some are, clearly. You, you can't get away from that. Um, they, no journalist should be a cheerleader, that, that's clear. Journalists should be as objective as possible. I think sport, the, the, it gets blurred, doesn't it, because it's a, it's a passionate and emotional thing and no one really wants their sport to be uh, filtered through a, a totally disinterested lens. It would, it would feel a bit unnatural. Of course, you've got to, you've got to draw, uh, strike a balance and maybe not everyone does that. Um, I, th- I think what's happening partly is that, thanks to Twitter and Facebook, if, if someone in England, say, is outraged by a piece written by an Australian journalist, mm-hmm. they can link to it on Twitter, and that then does the rounds, and suddenly it, it sort of fuels the fury that you find on Twitter. You know, there's a lot of fury on Twitter. I'm sure you've noticed <laughs> it yourself. I have to deal with it a bit from time to time. And it, I think this is a function of the fact that you're unlikely. To, you're less likely to tweet about. Oh, have you seen this nice, modest, uh, refreshingly uh, fair-minded piece by so and so in in Australia? Let, let's all applaud this. No, you're going to you're going to wade on in and look for the things that annoy you, and that that voice has taken control a bit. So I think it's that's exacerbated the the notion that journalists are being cheerleaders. Some are, but not all. Not all of us are. Mm-hmm. Um... Yeah. Ashish wants to know was 2011. I mean, I think we saw, I mean, there was a confluence of so many things, you know, uh, top ranked team uh, coming down uh, and England making the ascendant, ascendancy to uh, number one spot and the size of the media, the following in both the countries in India and England sort of fueled everything. And then you had the social networking sites, um, you know, you, you had Michael Vaughan uh, making statements like, you know, you should check his VVS bat for uh, Vaseline. And then, you know, he was trolling uh, people on Twitter. And uh, <laughs> he was. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, no, he, he was having a bit I'm of fun with it. I, yeah. And, I'll tell you what, I'm laughing in a minute. But, yeah. uh, and, and there was so much back and forth between the fans, journalists, all this. Uh, so Ashish wants to know, was 2011 a new low for cricket reporting? And <laughs> uh, was where personal and national biases overshadowing what needs to be cricket reporting? Is it a trend or just a one-off thing? Well, 
it, it comes back slightly to what I've just, I was just saying about we tend to notice the things that annoy us more. And because of Twitter, that, that has um, made that situation worse. So that, that's part of it. Vaughan, you, look, I mean, I, I, I remember I was in a lunch queue with him at Trent Bridge, the Trent Bridge test. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I turned around and said to him, I, yeah, that was a bit naughty, wasn't it, your, your Laxman tweet? about the, the Vaseline, and he, he sort of pretended to take offence and claim that it wasn't. But I think Vaughan's tweeting is a bit provocative. Um, I think he does it partly because he gets a rise out of people, and I, I, I don't... I, don't I, th- I think people... It's tough, isn't it? You're telling a passionate nation of 1.2 billion people to to not not react uh, to, to someone trying to wind them up. It's, it's, it's almost pointless. Um, and that is a problem. You, people can choose to take offence or they can rise above it. Mm-hmm. And the nature of sport is that you, people are, have invested their emotions in things and they, it's it's harder to rise above it. So that is where we're at at the moment. Um, whether it's a low point for sports reporting, I, I don't... I, I'd say not. I think there's still a lot of objective good writing. It just doesn't get picked up on as much. I mean, you read... You read some of the English broadsheets and, you know, I, I love reading Mike Atherton, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think Mike Selvey always has a very uh, disinterested, by which I mean impartial take on on the world game. Um, you know, it's, I don't think it's simply the case that we, one side tries to wind the other up. I, I, I think Twitter has has brought us all closer together in a sense, but it's also by bringing us closer together, it's, it's allowed us to land punches on each other more easily. And that's, that's not a, that's not a nice um, trend. I, you know, I, I, I can't bear the, the, the nationalistic nature of a lot of cricket tweets. It, I find it sad really. And I, I wish more of us were able to take the, the sort of an internationalist perspective on on the world game because it's 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 all our game. We're all all the teams are trying to win. Um, and if one, if we're just name calling, it demeans us all. A uh, couple more questions and then I'll let you go. Um, first one uh, from uh, again chasing Willow again. Um, she. She's saying that the editing standards, editorial standards, um, have slipped, uh, and you know, you see things getting misspelled on television, in newspaper, on websites. Um, you know, uh, she's saying that the Guardian uh, no longer follows its style guide. It's all a bit shit. Um, how does Wisden, the most traditionalist of uh, traditional establishments, handle the supposed? Um, modernization of language. Yeah, um, it, wisdom's got an advantage. Don't forget, because it's a yearly publication, so we can we can take some time uh, <laughs> in putting it together. And I think that that time question is is what's um, screwing other uh, organisations in a sense that the need to react quickly to the twenty four hour news cycle to get things on Twitter to get things up on the web as quickly as possible. Mistakes do creep in. Um, also, the, the, the situation with newspapers in England is that they're all, they're all losing money and they all have to cut costs, and often the sub-editors are the first ones to go. It's, a, it's, a, it's an unfortunate situation, but uh, the people who run newspapers in England don't have, 
don't seem to understand, I would say, that uh, sub-editors are, are crucial to for maintaining the integrity of a, of a publication. So how does Wisden do it? Well, there's the time issue. There's mm-hmm. the there's the fact that, you know, accuracy is one of the, the qualities I mentioned earlier that we really strive for, that, I mean, we have 1,600 pages, so mistakes will, will inevitably creep in, but we have a... We have quite a rigorous editing process. I mean, if someone will send in their copy. Uh, maybe I'll have first look at it. I'll have first crack and knock it into whatever shape it needs knocking into. Uh, someone else will then check some of the more obscure stats or facts that aren't easily checkable. Then it'll come back to me. Then it'll, I'll have another look. Then it'll go into a proof. Then five of us will read it at proof stage and discuss any changes we want to make. So it's quite a rigorous process. And the, the upshot is that not that many mistakes creep in. I could be setting myself up for a, <laughs> a fall here. But my, my first wisdom coming out this year could be riddled with with uh, typos. But by and large, that that's the process. It's just it's just a rigorous process that we that um, the, the, the time we have to produce wisdom allows, and we're, we're fortunate in that respect. I want to I want to get your personal uh, input on this uh, as someone that also re- writes for an online uh, publication and someone that reads other um, you know media outlets and other articles and etc. You know we had during uh, the recent India England series um, the, one of the largest cricket sites in the world had this. Um, title for an article England pawns India right yeah it's PWNS India I mean it was grating to read what's your take on that yeah I I could imagine that would be grating to read if you if you're an Indian fan no it doesn't matter I mean it doesn't matter whether you're an Indian fan an English fan or completely neutral well okay Um, it it would be more grating to it would be I'd find it grating as a non-Indian fan but I can imagine it's even more grating if you are an Indian fan. That, that's that's my first point. My second is they should, you know, that it's first of all, it's not the it's not the kind of it's up to Crick Info if they want to um, use that kind of a word. I'd say it's a quite apart from it being a, a bogus word. It's it's an overly aggressive word, and that those are the kind of I'd say it's provocative, mm-hmm. and that we shouldn't be doing that. It just inflames people. And I think Crick Info must have known that. And I think it I think some of the questions you've been asking me have, have been alluding to this this whole phenomenon of team of countries and teams trying to wind each other up or yeah. or uh, one upmanship because you know, India came to England as the number one ranked team and then England England won four nil, then England gone to the UAE as the number one ranked team, they've lost three nil. Ha ha, you deserve that. India didn't prepare properly, so they get they got what was coming. Now England have been unprepared. there's a there's a lot of name calling going on, uh, and I think it obscures, you know, more interesting debates. Really, um, like, you know, what's happened to Ian Bell's cover drive and um, things that tr- keep me awake at night. <laughs> so that's it's an unfortunate trend, and I think pawns is a uh, is a is a good example of that. <laughs> um, last question, and this comes from Gary Naylor. Uh, he wants to know from you. Uh, as you are in a unique position to answer this, uh, what's, what separates the pro from the amateurs in the sense of 
paid professional journalists and the unpaid amateur journalists um, such as uh, you know bloggers or uh, for websites or hybrids like the Guardian Sports Network and say even Tasman Sofa? I'd say it's the sense that uh, so-called professional journalists or, or men and women who make a living out of journalism um, have uh, are restricted essentially by what they're asked to do by their newspaper. But by and large, I mean, as a, as a if I go to a test match for the Daily Mail and I'm the I'm the number two there, which means my job essentially is to keep an eye out for news stories, go to the press conference, write up a quotes piece, do a little thing we have in the mail called Match Zone where I pick a few items from the game and write a paragraph about them. So that's that's my job. I don't have the freedom that a blogger does to, to take a subject and riff on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, equally, Paul Newman, who's the male cricket correspondent, his job is to write a match report that day. So we all work together. I might have to ghost a Nasser Hussain column or, or a David Lloyd column or whatever. We have a couple of guys who you know have contracts with the mail. So our, our job is to put together the pages as our office wants it. Um, the, the, the guys who, um, guys and girls who aren't uh, restricted by that can can do what they want. They can have a lot of fun. They they can go off on tangents, and it's. I, I suppose I try and do that a bit more with my top spin column. It's it's web. It's a web based thing, so I can. No one tells me what to write. I just decide each week, send it in, and and they say thank you very much. Generally, <laughs> um, so. The, the the professional journalists are restricted by the news cycle, I would say. Occasionally, a, uh, a newspaper journalist gets a column to write, maybe once a week. You know, Mike Atherton's columns are, are very good in The Times, for example. Uh, but by and large, uh, we are following a news cycle. It, it can be frustrating because, you know, we'd all love to... I'd love to ring up the mail office and say, look, I, I don't really fancy going to the press conference tonight. I, what I think I might write about is... Um, uh, you know the way Kevin Peterson walks to the wicket. How about I give you five hundred words on that? And they'd say, "You're fired." You know, <laughs> it just doesn't work like that. The bloggers can do that, and, and fair play to them because it's you know there's a lot of entertaining stuff out there, and I think the, the balance is good for, for both parties. All right. Um, on that note, Lawrence, thank you so much for uh, coming on the show and taking all the questions from the listeners and myself. Uh, much appreciated. My pleasure. It was good fun. Cheers. Cheers Couch Talk.